You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 325th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last episode to talk about the fight at the railroad cut at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, 1863. And we said that after that, starting at about noon, for the next couple or several hours, a lull descended across the battlefield. And at the end of the last show, we said we thought we'd take advantage of that pause in the action on the battlefield and use this episode, and the next, to turn our attention back to the two army commanders and see what was going on with Robert E. Lee and George Meade. As y'all recall, back on June 28th, when Meade was ordered to take command of the Army of the Potomac, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck had told him, quote, no one ever received a more important command, end quote. Halleck said this because Meade was being thrust into command in the midst of an ongoing campaign when battle was imminent, and everyone realized that following the disasters at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the Army of the Potomac could ill afford to lose another fight, especially one waged on northern soil. With the understanding that Meade's mission was to defeat the Confederate army that had invaded Pennsylvania, Halleck told Meade that he wouldn't be hindered by any micromanaging from Washington, and that he was free to act as he deemed proper. That said, Halleck reminded Meade that the Army of the Potomac was the quote-unquote covering army of Washington, protecting the capital, as well as the quote-unquote, army of operation against the rebels. In other words, it was expected that Meade would use the Army of the Potomac to not only shield Washington and Baltimore, but that he would confront and defeat the invading Confederates. This was a tall order for a general thrust into command right in the middle of a campaign, but Meade wasted no time and got right to work. On June 29th, writing to his wife and telling her of his appointment to command the army, he told her, I am moving at once against Lee. He asked for her prayers, telling her, I am going straight at them and will settle this thing one way or the other. Keep in mind those were personal comments, 
unlike, say, Joe Hooker's very public boasting and posturing. But had they known what he told his wife, those who knew George Meade would not have doubted his words, since they knew he was a straight shooter and meant what he said. Meade knew Lee had taken the Confederate Army up into Pennsylvania by way of the Cumberland Valley and that the rebels were moving across south-central Pennsylvania, heading for the Susquehanna River, aiming for the state capital of Harrisburg. And so, immediately upon taking command, Meade got to work, issuing orders that would take the Army of the Potomac northward on a broad front, thereby posing a threat that Lee couldn't ignore. Meade's goal was to force Lee to break off his advance and turn away from the Susquehanna. Meade realized that once Lee turned away from the Susquehanna and Harrisburg, the Confederate commander would, by necessity, have to move to confront the threat posed by the advancing Federal Army, and that meant a major battle would be just around the corner. And so, knowing a major fight was imminent, Meade marched the Army of the Potomac northward so that each corps had supporting corps close by. This was especially true on the left, where John Reynolds had been given control of that wing of the army. Throughout June 29th and June 30th, Meade advanced the 7th Infantry Corps of the Army of the Potomac north toward Pennsylvania on a broad front. Army headquarters moved to Middleburg, Maryland on the 29th, and on the 30th, to Tawnytown, still in Maryland, but just below the Pennsylvania state line and some 14 miles south of Gettysburg. On the 30th, Meade received important news. By all reports, it appeared the Confederates had broken off their advance to the Susquehanna. And so, having achieved his goal of compelling the Confederates to loose their hold on the river, Meade knew that Lee would now have to fight if he wanted to stay in Pennsylvania. So Meade's thoughts turned to selecting a good defensive position for the Army of the Potomac to occupy so that he would fight the coming battle with every advantage on the best ground available while the rebels would be the ones fighting at a disadvantage. Knowing that he'd frustrated any intention Robert E. Lee might have had to carry his advance beyond the Susquehanna, George Meade no longer needed to continue thrusting the Army of the Potomac forward in hopes of disrupting the enemy's schemes. So, as Rich just said, the Federal commander's thoughts turned to finding a good place to fight a defensive battle. In fact, throughout the day on June 30th, staff officers, under the supervision of Meade's chief engineer, Governor K. Warren, had already been out scouting for just such a location. Warren found what seemed to be an ideal spot just below the Pennsylvania state line, where the Army's position could follow a 20-mile-long chain of hills rising along the southern side of Big Pipe Creek. This position would give the Army of the Potomac the advantage of excellent high ground to occupy, while offering the added benefit that less than 10 miles behind Pipe Creek was the railhead town of Westminster, Maryland, where Meade would have a supply link back to Washington and Baltimore by way of the Western Maryland Railroad. 
Back in episode number 314, we talked about the Pipe Creek line and the Pipe Creek Circular, so we won't belabor the point here, except to say again that we think, for George Meade, finding a good spot to fight a defensive battle started out as a contingency plan to be used in case of an emergency, should Lee attack unexpectedly. But then once the enemy loosed his hold on the Susquehanna, Pipe Creek morphed from being a contingency plan to being Meade's preferred spot to fight the upcoming battle. And so, to get ready to fight a defensive battle behind Pipe Creek, Meade had his headquarters staff prepare what came to be known as the Pipe Creek Circular. Sent out early on the morning of July 1st, the Circular instructed his subordinates that should they encounter Lee and should Lee attack, they were to fall back to the Pipe Creek line, drawing the Confederates toward it. The Pipe Creek Circular would, in the future, cause George Meade no end of trouble. His enemies, most notably Dan Sickles, would point to the Circular as supposed proof of their premise that Meade never intended to fight at Gettysburg, wanted to retreat from the town even after battle had been joined, and so didn't deserve any of the credit for the victory there. On the other hand, Meade's defenders would claim he was never wedded to the Pipe Creek position, and that he was open to the idea of fighting somewhere else, should other good, defensible ground be found, as it was at Gettysburg. In any case, while the Pipe Creek Circular would later be used by his enemies, as a cross on which to crucify Meade, the point actually, at the time, as events were unfolding, quickly became moot, because John Reynolds, commanding the left wing of the Army of the Potomac, never received the circular, and so a full-blown battle started up at the crossroads town of Gettysburg on July 1st. And George Meade, even though Gettysburg wasn't necessarily his first choice as far as a spot to fight a battle, would nevertheless stick with it and see it through. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pipe Creek Circular never reached Reynolds, nor did Reynolds receive another message that Meade also sent off the morning of July 1st. In the latter message, Meade asked for Reynolds' view on whether Gettysburg was a good spot to fight a battle. Meade noted that, quote, If the enemy is concentrating in front of Gettysburg or to the left of it, the general is not sufficiently well informed of the nature of the country to judge of its character for, for either an offensive or defensive position. That message seems to support the claims of Meade's defenders, that is, that he was not committed to the Pipe Creek position, but was open to fighting somewhere else. It would also confirm Meade's later testimony before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War that the Pipe Creek Circular was a, quote, mere contingent intended only to be executed under certain circumstances. At any rate, Meade's marching orders for the first day of July gave destinations for each of the seven corps. The first corps was to march to Gettysburg, and the 11th was to follow and stay in supporting distance, with the 3rd trailing along behind and just making Emmitsburg. Slocum's 12th Corps, part of another wing of the army, would also end its day's march within supporting distance, setting up camp at two taverns just four miles southeast of Gettysburg on the Baltimore Pike. The other three corps would be farther off, the 2nd at Tawnytown, the 5th at Hanover, and the 6th well to the east at Manchester. Meade directed his generals to have their corps leave behind unnecessary baggage and to travel light. He also warned them that the latest intelligence he'd received indicated the enemy's, quote, movements indicate a disposition to advance from Chambersburg to Gettysburg, end quote. Meade also called for the distribution to the troops of three days' rations and 60 rounds of ammunition per man, sure signs that a battle was imminent. Still, Meade wasn't sure when and where his army would encounter the enemy. Until that happened, Pipe Creek was appealing, but he was open to Reynolds' advice about whether to fight at Gettysburg. However, since John Reynolds never received the Pipe Creek Circular or the other message that Meade sent off to him on July 1st, it's important to keep in mind just what Reynolds did know about George Meade's plans. So when John Reynolds set out for Gettysburg on that fateful Wednesday morning, what did he know about Meade's intentions? According to Harry Fans in his book, Gettysburg the First Day, Meade, after taking command of the army, had talked with Reynolds about his desire to bring the enemy to battle, quote, whenever and wherever found, end quote. And then with Meade's marching orders for July 1st, Reynolds was of course aware that he was being directed to lead the strong left wing of the army to where the rebels were showing the strongest force. When Reynolds looked at a map, he would have seen that Meade was placing two corps at or near Gettysburg on the first day of July, and four others on main roads converging on the town. 
Without missing a beat, George Meade, in a little over three days since taking over command, had made a general advance of 30 miles and put his army in a good position to meet a challenge by the enemy. It was obvious Meade was hoping to get more definite information about Confederate operations on July 1st, and when he sent two corps to Gettysburg on that day, he didn't anticipate real trouble, but neither did he try to avoid it. Meade had placed the man he considered his most dependable and ablest subordinate, John Reynolds, in charge of the Army's left wing, the portion of the army most likely to make contact with the enemy. Furthermore, as can be seen from the July 1st message that never reached Reynolds, Meade was placing a great deal of trust in Reynolds' judgment as to whether or not Gettysburg was a good place to fight a battle. So, all in all, what we're trying to get at here is that although some historians have portrayed George Meade as completely put out and discombobulated, by John Reynolds' decision to initiate a battle at Gettysburg on July 1st, the truth is that Meade had already demonstrated his willingness to fight Lee at any time and any place, as long as it was to his advantage to do so. Reynolds' decision to escalate the fight at Gettysburg on the morning of the first day of July was perfectly consistent not only with his own temperament and inclination, but also consistent with what he knew about Meade's intentions and with the dispositions Meade had made in placing the army in a position to meet a challenge by the enemy. When John Reynolds put his troops on the march for Gettysburg that Wednesday morning, it seems, by all accounts, that he didn't expect a major collision with the rebels at the town that day. But when he realized that was what was happening he hesitated not at all in committing to an escalation of the fighting in order to keep the Confederates out of Gettysburg for as long as possible and away from the good ground south of town. And it seems safe to say, in making that decision, John Reynolds wouldn't have doubted for an instant that George Meade would do anything other than fully support him. As we've related previously on the podcast, after he arrived at Gettysburg and found Buford's Union cavalry already engaged with the advancing Confederates, John Reynolds decided quickly that he would hurry his troops forward to support Buford. Having made that decision, Reynolds then turned to his aide, Captain Stephen Weld, and gave him a verbal message to deliver to George Meade. According to Weld, Reynolds told him that he would find Meade at the Army Commander's headquarters at Tawnytown, some 14 miles away, quote, and told me to ride with the greatest speed I could, no matter if I killed my horse. Weld spurred off, carrying the following message from Reynolds to Meade, quote, The enemy are advancing in strong force. I fear they will get to the heights beyond the town before I can. I will fight them inch by inch, and if driven into the town, I will barricade the streets and hold them back as long as possible. Reynolds also sent messengers racing off to the commanders of the other two corps of the Army's left wing. To the 11th Corps' Otis Howard, 
Reynolds sent a message saying that he had encountered the enemy in force at Gettysburg, and Howard was, quote, to bring your corps forward as rapidly as possible, end quote. And then for the commander of the Third Corps, Reynolds' message was, quote, Tell General Sickles I think he had better come up. Having sent off those messages, John Reynolds galloped off to bring up his men for the, of the First Corps and to keep his date with destiny. Meanwhile, down at Tawnytown, Winfield Scott Hancock's Second Corps started to march into town around 11 a.m. that morning. Hancock reported to Army headquarters and was talking with Meade about the Pipe Creek line when, about 11.30, Captain Weld rode up with Reynolds' urgent verbal message that he was going to make a fight of it at Gettysburg. Shortly thereafter, Meade received another message, this one from John Buford, and penned about 10 minutes after 10, reporting that A.P. Hill's Confederates were driving back, quote, my pickets and skirmishers very rapidly, end quote. As Meade grappled with the implications of these messages and considered how best to manage the rapidly evolving situation, everything changed abruptly about 1 p.m. when word arrived that Reynolds had been killed early in the fighting at Gettysburg. Fortunately for Meade, Winfield Scott Hancock, a highly competent subordinate, was already at hand, so Meade directed him to ride to Gettysburg and, quote, assume command of the corps there assembled, the 11th, 1st, and 3rd at Emmitsburg. If you think the ground and position there a better one to fight a battle under existing circumstances, you will so advise the general, and he will order all the troops up. As Meade later pointed out, Gettysburg was, quote, a place which I had never seen in my life, end quote. And so, like he had with Reynolds, Meade was entrusting Hancock with the latitude to determine if the place was a good spot to fight a battle. Hancock left Tawnytown around 1.30, riding in an ambulance for the first several miles so that he could look at some maps. As it would turn out, though, even before he heard back from Hancock, Meade would begin issuing the orders that would commit the entire army to battle at Gettysburg. Upon reflection, Meade had realized that with three of his seven corps already committed to an engagement there, he had better, sooner rather than later, issue orders that would bring the rest of the army up to Gettysburg. And so, by the time Hancock arrived back at Tawnytown sometime between 9 and 10 that night to report to Meade, he found that the army commander had already ordered the other four corps to advance to the crossroads town. After talking with Hancock, George Meade, sometime after 10 o'clock that night, and at the end of just his fourth day in command of the Army of the Potomac, set out, riding north through the moonlight, ready to make his stand at Gettysburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Three Days at Gettysburg, Essays on Confederate and Union Leadership, edited by Gary Gallagher. This book has over a dozen essays by noted Civil War historians, all focusing on the nature of command 
and on different aspects of the three-day battle at Gettysburg. You may not always agree on a particular author's take on a subject, but it always makes for interesting and thought-provoking reading. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast, and that would be Jean, Paul Pollian, Ed K, Mark, and Ed R. And thanks to Don, Steve, and John for their donations this past week. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll turn our attention to Robert E. Lee. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.